The History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week. November 29th, 1948. I'm Kalen Jones. It's 8.30 p.m. at the 69th Regiment Armory on the corner of 26th and Lexington in New York City. The crowd is a mix of working-class New Yorkers and upper-crust elites, cheering, stomping their feet, ringing cowbells. The thousands of fans packed inside are not here to see a baseball game or a football game or even a horse race or boxing match. They're on hand to see New York City take on Brooklyn in roller derby. All eyes are on the banked oval track as 10 women, five on each team, battle it out on wheels. Keep your eyes on the pack. There may be a break any second now. Coming around to turn into the straightaway. Up there at the head of the pack, several girls attempting to get out on the sprint. And there they go. The sport is fast-paced. It's exciting. And at times, it's violent. You wonder why these gals are rocking and socking. It's because if they can knock the opponent down in the pack, And although this full-contact version of roller derby has been around for over 10 years at this point, tonight is something special. It's the first time that the sport is being broadcast in the people's living rooms from coast to coast on TV. Today, we look at the formation, evolution, and so-called golden age of roller derby, kicked off by the sport's national television debut. How did this sport grow out of a Depression-era distraction into a nationwide phenomenon? And how did roller derby completely upend the expectations of society, a legacy that's still alive in the sport today? Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's the early 1930s. As much as one-fourth of the United States is unemployed, people are hungry, desperate, and bored. It is right smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression. That's Michelle Marino a professional roller derby athlete and author of Roller Derby, The History of an American Sport. People are looking for, in some ways, like mindless entertainment where you can just kind of come and go and you don't necessarily have to follow it, but you can bring the whole family. One of the main forms of entertainment to fit that bill? Walkathons and danceathons. Here we are dancing 24 hours daily at White City, Chicago, in the world's greatest marathon. Hours-long, sometimes days-long events 
where regular people off the street just walk or dance literally till they drop. How do you feel, Frankie? Oh, I feel pretty tired. We all feel tired, but we hope to win. I can't imagine watching anything more boring, right? But it was right. popular, the <laughs> Great Depression, like you don't have much money, anybody can participate in this. These live events get the attention of a young entrepreneur on the West Coast, Leo Seltzer. Who was Leo Seltzer? And can you give us a sense of what his personality was like? He was very much larger than life. <laughs> <laughs> That's Steve Seltzer, Leo's grandson. His father emigrated from Romania to Montana. He taught himself to do some different industries. And Leo said, you know what? My dad could do it. I can do it. He moved to Portland. He wanted to learn about this new motion picture business. He had his foot in the entertainment world. And he really managed to rub elbows with a lot of, uh, a lot of famous people. Seltzer opens up a chain of movie theaters, but there aren't a lot of people filling the seats. And he blames the poor attendance on the fact that audiences want more live entertainment. So, like any good businessman, Leo Seltzer pivots. To be an entrepreneur, you kind of have to dip your toe in a lot of different pools. And one of them's bound to work. He had a good-sized ego, and he was usually right. Seltzer begins hosting his own walkathons offering a first-place prize of $2,000, around $40,000 today. Unemployed folks get in line. They know that they'll at least get food that day while they compete. But if walking gets people excited, Seltzer thinks he can ramp up the action even more. He was reading some statistics, and by far the most popular sport, because it requires very little equipment, was roller skating. Everyone, you know, had skates, everyone put skates on so they had a, a real touch point to be able to reach out and see these very talented people skate at very high speeds and <laughs> do dangerous things. And so in August 1935, the Transcontinental Roller Derby is born. It's just like a walkathon, except everyone is on roller skates and over 20,000 people come to watch. There's like a field of 12 teams, uh, a male and female on each team that are racing against each other and essentially has to skate the mileage distance from coast to coast. So like from New York to LA or New York to San Francisco, like three to 4,000 miles. Team members skate in shifts, going round and around the track until their teammate swaps in, like a relay race. Except these races can last for three or four weeks. They would have bunks down there in the infield because they were skating for 12 hours a day so your partner, when you're not on the track, you'd be taking a lap or you'd be eating a meal um, or you'd be getting like medical attention. I remember my grandma telling me stories, of course. That's Sherry Gammon Cantel, granddaughter of Jerry Murray, one of the original superstars of Leo Seltzer's eventual roller derby empire. They used to have orchestras in the middle because it took so long. I mean, they skated for hours. And people would dance and party through the night. So I just think it gave people an escape. Seltzer hosts 22 walkathons and skateathons over five years. Tickets cost just 15 cents, yet Seltzer is able to gross upwards of $2 million. To the average person, they'd be like, how do you monetize that? But I mean, 
They had contests. There were door prizes. There, the concessions. You know, it's good to be able to think 360 degrees like that. It's like shake them by the ankles and figure out how much you know each person is going to be able to spend between food and a program and you know maybe photographs and, and a, a raffle ticket and everything else. And Seltzer keeps adding new attractions. He would like hire comedians to come in and like tell jokes and rile up the crowd, or they'd have like other little gimmicky type things to keep the crowd entertained when there might be like a lull in action. During some roller derby events, Seltzer puts on cellophane weddings, where the bride is wearing nothing but clear cellophane over her underwear. But despite all his efforts, the novelty of the skateathon starts to wear off. Until inspiration strikes again. At a skating marathon in Coral Gables, Florida, Seltzer is joined by his friend, journalist and short story writer Damon Runyon, where they notice a few shorter speed skaters starting to whiz past some of the slower, more lumbering skaters. And like it's Black Friday or a New York City subway car, they start shoving each other. And the audience loves it. You weren't supposed to have any contact with the other skaters on the track during this marathon. Like they're pushing, they're shoving, like the crowd's going crazy. And they realize like this could be something new. That night, Seltzer and Runyon put their heads together and come up with a whole new sport that we'd come to know as the modern version of roller derby. The new rules are as follows. There's now two teams. And each team is made up of five men and five women. Referee would blow a whistle, and that would start what's called a jam. And then the first skaters to, like, break out of the pack would skate all the way around the track, and then they would have to work their way through the pack and break free again. These skaters must fight their way from the back of the pack to the front, scoring points for each opponent they pass. Players jostle and jockey for position to keep their opponents from passing sending each other flying into the railing or down onto the track. It's chaos and people are pushing each other and shoving and blocking and hip checking. And so melee on the track. There are women on the track and they're hitting each other and clotheslining each other and hip checking. I've only seen film from that time. It looked like every match must have been totally sold out. This new sport finds a rabid audience, but an interesting narrative starts to pop up. The women on the skate are like the wilder ones. They're the ones that are going to start the fight. You see a lot of newspaper coverage about them being Amazons, being roughnecks, about them being tougher than the men. She's a lady, and she's a lady. In fact, they've all been ladies since they could crawl. But this lot of crawlers is far from ladylike. A lot of the coverage implies that the women who compete in these roller derbies are quote-unquote unfeminine. But the competitors don't seem to care. To them, this feels bigger than sports. It feels like the start of a movement. It wasn't just a man's sport or a woman's sport. They were on the same team. Maybe it was the beginning of equality. I mean, maybe it was women starting to see women. I don't have to sit in the house and do this. I can do other things. Seltzer capitalizes on this socially progressive angle. 
He would sell tickets in places he thought women would be. So you could buy a ticket for the roller derby at your beauty salon or at the grocery store or other places like that. So like he's very aware of who he's marketing to, why he's marketing to them and how to bring those people in without also isolating the middle and upper classes. There always seems to be these inherent contradictions in the background of roller derby's history. You want to appeal to the working class, but you don't want to shut out the upper class. It was always excitement and and diversity. There was people that, you know, had to sneak in because they didn't have the money to get in. I mean, I remember seeing pictures of, say, like, Humphrey Bogart sitting in the front row. Clark Gable attended the roller derby, like Kate Smith. Mickey Rooney would often be seen at the roller derby, like all these like really famous stars. And it really does appeal in the, the 30s through the 50s to like a wide swath of like the American public. The New York and Hollywood elite always gravitate to it, but it always has like a working class, middle class fan base as well. To maintain roller derby's mass appeal, Seltzer makes compromises. For example, he wants the female athletes to be tough, but not too tough. They can't just come in with like a radical revolution and throw down the patriarchy or whatever it is. Like they're operating within a system that can't just alienate a whole giant segments of society. So they're always pushing the bar a bit, but then they're sugarcoating it. Similarly, roller derby has this unique element where men and women are teammates, but... Leo Seltzer actually had a rule where skaters could not date or marry each other. Well, then he realized if you put in a rule like that, which one is probably super illegal, that they're going to marry outside of the roller derby and probably leave the roller derby to settle down and have a family or whatever. So he very quickly is like, that's not happening. That was a terrible idea. But Seltzer also isn't afraid to open up the sport to anyone who wants to compete. They just wanted to help the gate. Whoever that was, it was going to help promote the sport. If that was women, if that was people of color, if that were gay skaters, like they didn't really care. They are inclusive of women, inclusive of black skaters, of LGBTQ skaters, way earlier than anybody else. I would go to a match. Here's this guy from Samoa. Here's this guy from New York City. Here, here's this guy from Mexico. Here's this guy from Italy. It was just such a melting pot. As far as roller derby as a sport, well, a lot of people don't see it that way. That was always a battle that the Seltzers were finding to be taken seriously as a legitimate sport. They had ideas that this could possibly evolve into a sport that could be in the Olympics someday, and they were serious about that. Roller Derby goes to White Sox Stadium and sells more tickets than the White Sox. But the the media never really totally got on board. It was always thought of as as being more entertainment and showbiz than than an actual sport. The sports media in particular would acknowledge the excitement of roller derby but they would maintain that it wasn't true sport. Like they would highlight the sort of flashier, showier aspects of it. And partly they didn't know what to do with it because women were involved. Like if you look, for instance, it's the Indianapolis Star, they would often not even cover it on the sports page. It would be like in the marriage announcements and like local entertainment section. 
Felter believes that in order to fully legitimize the sport, he needs roller derby to go mainstream. He needs the whole country to know about roller derby. He needs television. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's now 1948. It's been just over a decade since Leo Seltzer turned the sport of roller derby from an endless marathon into a full-contact co-ed sport. It's fast-paced and exciting, and audiences love the element of danger. I went down one day, and there these guys that I grew up with went to jump over the top of me and warm up, kicking me in the face. And I warmed up with a uh, detached retina. That's Nick Skopas, who competed in roller derby professionally in the 1940s and 50s. He was inducted into the Roller Derby Hall of Fame in 2016. Number one, and he's padding. It made a, a fiberglass bomb to me to wear. Would dislocate again. I never broke anything. I would dislocate everything. There was ice packs almost every night. Again, Sherry Gammon Cantal is the granddaughter of Jerry Murray, one of Roller Derby's first true superstars. Let me just put it to you that way. Always. Ice packs and the massage guy, the, the trainer guy, the chiropractor. Seltzer has also made some incredibly savvy business moves along the way, even going so far as to try to copyright the entire sport. Essentially, the judges are like, you can't copyright a sport. Like, you're not allowed to do that. And so he's like, oh, okay, fine, I can't do that. He doesn't give up. He comes at it from another angle. And he's like, okay, I see where you are with your copyright. And he trademarks the name Roller Derby. So he can't prevent you from putting on your own Roller Derby, but you're sure as not going to call it that. But despite the popularity, it's still not quite the massive cash cow that Seltzer envisions. They were just like struggling to stay afloat. So the roller derby skaters weren't even really getting salaries. They were just sort of being paid a room and board and, uh, you know, for their travels. We didn't make a whole bunch of money, but back in the 50s, you know, we used to make like maybe $150 a piece a week. But then we would set the track up, which was another $110. Enter television. Now, television in the 1940s, as you might expect, is pretty low-tech by today's standards. There are only four networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and something called the Dumont Network. This is the Dumont Television Network. 
and programming only lasts from 7 to 11 p.m. every night. Other than that, there are a lot of familiar formats. Sitcoms, talk shows, quiz shows, newscasts, even the NFL and Major League Baseball. But the one thing TV definitely carries? Legitimacy. Again, here's Steve Seltzer, grandson of roller derby entrepreneur Leo Seltzer. He was going up against established sports that the, you know, between basketball, baseball, football, I mean, all these other sports had teams in college and, you know, people were much more used to seeing those sports. And he figured that was a way that he could get a leg up. And, uh, you know, instead of everybody having to come see it in person, television was a good medium for him to reach a larger audience. There's never been anything remotely like roller derby on TV before. And perhaps that actually helps, because Leo Seltzer meets with CBS in 1948 and negotiates a 13-week TV contract. On November 29, 1948, Roller Derby is broadcast nationwide for the very first time. New York and the Roller Skating Championships live well up to their reputation as our freewheeling, free-for-all. The rules of this sort of thing seem to be a bit elastic, and the girls really let themselves go. The teams don't even have names yet. They're simply known as New York City and Brooklyn. The highlight of the match is when Jerry Murray of New York bowls over Brooklyn star Midge Tuffy Brejune, igniting the crowd. The two stars would go on to have these sorts of head-to-head battles for years to come. Player Tuffy coming in with a chance for one, two, three, four, five-pointer. Tuffy just wakes up to the fact that she got a penalty and she's knocked down by Murray. The success from the broadcast is immediate, kicking off what roller derby historian Michelle Marino calls the golden era of roller derby from this moment of them making it big on TV in 1948 to them landing a television contract in 1949 through 1952. Within days, the crowd size has nearly doubled. In all, over 90,000 fans attend this initial series at the 69th Regiment Armory, and half of them say it's directly because of, quote, the pulling power of television. The Detroit Free Press writes, Television drew customers like mesmerized flies. That completely propelled the sport into the limelight. They can't underestimate like how important that was for it. And they didn't understand it at the time, but roller derby and TV were helping each other essentially become popular, if you will. The TV coverage becomes an incredible recruitment tool for the sport as participation explodes. They used to have that telecast, but used to have, if you want to learn how to skate, right? We're having tryouts on Saturday, and we're having the junior roller derby, so that you can skate, and on you look halfway decent on the track, we'll put you as one of the teams. When Seltzer's contract with CBS ends in 1949, he takes roller derby to ABC. Over the next two years, his organization grosses over $2.5 million. Suddenly, the skaters are now earning big money, both on and off the rink. They started having match races, one guy against another. We would make 1% of the house at that time. I'm having my match race at Madison Square Garden. We sold that place out. There was like 50,000 people there. That was a good payday. Some skaters became very wealthy, became very famous. Uh, you know, had a lot of endorsements. You could buy Jerry Murray hair bows at various points, like in, in, uh, other like promotional products that they would sell. 
It was like a star system. LeBron James gets paid more than someone who just started for the Indiana Pacers, right? He's a bigger player, right? So if you are a star, you're bringing in crowds, you're a well-known name, you are paid the highest versus what they would just call was a pack skater. And that was essentially just like one cigarette in the pack is what they called it. And just like with sports today, the fans are intense. A lot of the skaters would describe like having to have like police escorts when they would leave the track because fans would get so riled up, they would try to attack them. I think it was Bobby Mateer, who was a famous skater in the 50s um, and 60s, said that people would like get scissors and like threaten to cut her ponytail off. Sometimes there would be fan violence because they'd be so upset about things that happened on the track. So there's a lot of engagement between the skaters and the fans. I have read a lot of like newspaper articles of like fans like kind of losing their minds and <laughs> temporarily like throwing things onto the track. I mean, just kind of crazy stuff. Leo Seltzer can barely keep up with the demand. So he turns roller derby into a family business, enlisting his wife and son Jerry to work for him. Roller derby quickly goes from a traveling oddity to a cultural touchstone. You just think about Roller Derby Queen, the song by Jim Croce. You know, there were several really famous movies at various eras. There's the Fireball that Mickey Rooney stars in, which is an early film. And like, I think it was late 40s, early 50s. It's actually one of the first films Marilyn Monroe appears in. A short film called Roller Derby Girl is nominated for an Oscar in 1949. And she goes down hot and the whistle blows. It's the end of the period. The men take over. The game goes on. And in the ultimate sign that Seltzer's gamble of putting roller derby on TV will legitimize the sport, roller derby gets covered on the front page of the sports section, not the fashion or wedding section, of the New York Times. Fans can't get enough. The sport and the TV exposure expand. He had a contract with uh, uh, a television station and they wanted three games a week. And he was like, oh, you know, it's such a hassle trying to put together three games a week. I have to have, you know, six different teams or, you know, they wanted new stuff all the time. And it keeps expanding. Back in the uh, late 40s and 50s, it was on five days a week. And you know, it was on TV almost every day. Roller derby teams are traveling around the globe to keep up with their increasingly hectic TV schedules, often with their entire families. We all traveled on the buses, I'm sure. Um, I was a pain in everybody, do you know what? Because um, I, everybody had to entertain me. They taught me how to play poker at a very young age. <laughs> they would send advancement out to make sure the hotels had cribs or strollers or whatever else that the lemon needed. This is probably some sort of like weird labor exploitation, but they would use the skaters that were in training, the trainees, they would use those skaters to babysit the children of the star skaters. Next thing you know, roller derby is a 365 day a year sport. Because of this, they can't have the roller derby equivalent of a Super Bowl or World Series or an off season at all. But it ends up sort of biting them in the butt, if you will, with TV, because there's nothing for Leo Seltzer to do. Like, he can't give the skaters a break. He can't, like, take them off the TV because then they threaten to pull the contract. It just saturates the market. 
People get tired of it. The so-called golden age of roller derby ends around 1952. But as Michelle Marino points out, it follows a familiar cycle with roller skating in America. Roller skating has always has really been popular in the United States for a very long time and has always sort of gone in boom and bust cycles where it'll be really popular for 10 years. And sure enough, roller derby continues to have revivals throughout the decades, boosted by the 2009 film Whip It, starring Elliot Page and Marsha Gay Harden. First whistle blows and the pack takes off. Looking good, Barbie. Looks like you've got some competition. Yeah, yeah, wake me when she learns how to throw a hit. But regardless of its popularity in any decade, the legacy of roller derby, particularly in women's sports, is undeniable. They always have been co-ed. They always made it work. And women have always been equal within it. Have things gotten better? Like, do women have to necessarily wear hair bows all the time or do some of these, again, apologetic behaviors that we've had to do historically? Not necessarily, but still sometimes. There's just all sorts of things that women still have to do to justify their space and belonging within the realm of athletics. Roller derby is the only sport in American history that did it right from the beginning, right? Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1890, the first ever Army-Navy football game is played at West Point, with the Navy midshipmen winning 24 to nothing. And 1975, Ohio State running back Archie Griffin wins his unprecedented second Heisman Trophy as the best college football player in the nation. He's still the only athlete to win the award multiple times. If you'd like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guest, Michelle Marino, Deputy Director of the Indiana Historical Bureau and author of Roller Derby, The History of an American Sport. Sherry Gammon Cantel, granddaughter of roller derby legend Jerry Murray. Steve Seltzer, grandson of roller derby founder Leo Seltzer. And Nick Skopas, was inducted into the Roller Derby Hall of Fame in 2016. This episode was produced by David Ingber. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by the Poglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.